Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas can shape markets and they can change the world. For some time now, I've been talking to uh, human resource professionals, uh, security executives, uh, CEOs, and the thing that comes to mind over and over again is just having this incredible engaged culture. And then the pandemic hits. And then it was, uh, we started hearing about psychological safety. And, uh, and many of the different leaders have cited polls, surveys, data coming from Gallup, one of the premier uh, organizations in human performance. And so it was recommended the other day by one of our leaders that we get a hold of Dan Witters, who serves as the research director of the Gallup National Health and Wellbeing Index. And Dan, it's great to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Ron. Uh, it, it, you know, that title actually uh, minimizes his background. He, uh, for many, many years now, Dan has directed more than something like $150, $200 million in research, studying some of the world's best managed companies in well-being. And, uh, and also, uh, quite frankly, his research methodology, methodology has earned him some highly distinctive awards. So Dan really will appreciate your perspective, but let's start off by defining well-being. Yeah, that's important to do. Um, if you look at some underlying principles of successful well-being intervention programs, Ron, one of them is having a clearly defined definition of what you mean by well-being. So one of the ways that we can cut ourselves short is uh, by everyone not singing off the same song sheet inside of any given organization. I'm especially talking to the leaders out there. From Gallup's perspective, and this is, of course, an, a data-based, empirically-derived model, we boiled it down to five essential elements of well-being. Um, they, the first one is what we call career. It's previously been called purpose. So, so um, some of your viewers might know it under that naming convention. Um, this, is, this is about liking what you do every day. It's about being a good natural right fit for what you do, be it as a worker, as a stay-at-home parent or house manager, as a retiree, as a student, um, uh, are you using your strengths to do what you do best every day? Are you setting and reaching goals? Uh, are you learning and doing new and interesting things? Do you have a leader who's inspiring you? That's what we mean when we talk about career well-being, not just for people in the workforce, for anybody at any point in their lives. The second one is social well-being, and that's the love that you have in your life, uh, getting positive energy from family and friends, uh, having someone in your life who, who encourages you to be healthy, um, the third one is community well-being. Uh, community well-being is um, your emotional attachment to the area where you live. So, so how proud of you are it? Uh, how do you like living there? How safe do you feel walking around you there? And how much do you give back to your community? Uh, fourth one is financial well-being. Financial well-being is um, it's correlated, of course, with income, but it's not about how much money you make so much as how you live within your means and manage your wealth to build financial security. Uh, and then the last one is physical. Physical well-being, of course, has to be a part of it. Um, so we'll ask an array of questions on uh, your, your, your physical health. We'll kind of hit all the major disease states. Um, your, your healthy behaviors, how you eat, how you exercise. 
Um, and some kind of more subjective type metrics, like feeling how much do you agree or disagree that you feel active and productive every day. Uh, those are all the, the aspects of physical. So uh, all the questions inside of our instrument have uh, statistically earned their place at the table. And each of the five elements have statistically earned their place at the table. And what we found through our R&D is once you got those five entered, anything else that you considered was either statistically superfluous, what's already there, and so it was unnecessary, or it wasn't very good at, at predicting the kind of outcomes that we were really interested in predicting when it came to this thing called well-being. And so we found with those five, we had something very comprehensive. Um, it's been robustly validated and, uh, you know, is, is a good tool for anybody to use and is a good definition for, for any leader to use when thinking about what well-being ought to be. And, and also what's interesting about the five, Dan, uh, just as you were speaking about it, and I'm sure it was clicking with most of the executives on the line here, is uh, the fact that they're all intertwined. They are indeed. And that's an important point, Ron, that, that you know, there, there, there is an additive non-overlapping aspect to our five-pronged well-being model. They all influence one another, um, for, to be sure. Um, the one of the five that is, that is most influential on the other four is career well-being. So I think if, if, if I had to pick one, um, I'd probably start with career to build everything else around it. That being said, what we have found is consistently, in fact, I've, I've yet to see any exception to this rule. And that is that individuals or organizations or communities that exhibit high well-being across all five of these elements outperform individuals or teams or organizations or communities across an array of different types of outcomes that are good at one or two of them, but are not good at all of them. And so this, the, this utility and benefit of holistic well-being is always just better than physical wellness alone or really any of the, any of the individual elements on their own. Well, I was thinking all the... Um... Uh, those of us who've raised children, those of us who've managed employees, led employees, um, there is an inherent vacuum in people of not being sure who they are, where they fit. It's one thing to like something. It's another thing to be strategically competent in that thing. And when you say career, I can see why you once called it purpose this idea of why I'm here and am I in my sweet spot? And um, since there aren't a lot of supporting architectures for that, you're not gonna necessarily get that in school. You're not gonna necessarily get that in your workplace. It starts, um, it starts uh, feeding a imperative and that is you, you need a how. How do I get to my purpose? How do I get to my strength and then what is my supporting mechanism for manifesting that strength? Yeah, and that that's gonna that's gonna show up in different ways depending on the kind of environment that you're in. Um, Gallup is a managing consulting firm. We spend a lot of time with organizations, helping them think about how to get the most out of their human capital. Um, do a lot of strengths based development, strengths based consulting. 
Uh, we're a big employee engagement organization. In fact, Gallup, everyone calls it employee engagement now, but Gallup coined the term uh, back in the mid-1990s. Um, and inside of that context, um, the, 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 we find there to be a very, very significant nexus, Ron, between employee engagement and strengths usage and well-being. Uh, strengths is, is kind of an embedded part of both engagement and well-being. So I, maybe for, for the purposes of this conversation, I'll leave that one aside for now. But if you think about engagement and well-being, um, engagement is not a, you know, we define it quite clearly, just like we do with well-being. We have an empirically derived model. The, the Gallup Q12 has been around a long time. I'm sure some of your listeners are going to be familiar with it. These are 12 distinct psychological needs that have been studied and have validated and each have earned their place statistically at the table. Um, we've gone through multiple rounds of international meta-analyses demonstrating the usefulness of employee engagement defined by these 12 things. So it's, it's not a general or generic sense of mind. Is, it is defined as how much are you experiencing or not each of these 12 things in the workplace. And that includes things like clarity of, of job role, having the things that you need to do your job, getting routine and regular recognition for your work, having a mentor at work who's looking out for your development, feeling like your opinions count, feeling like your coworkers are committed to doing quality work and having opportunities at work to learn and grow, uh, among others. But that kind of gives folks an idea of what we're talking about when we're talking about engagement. This is the foundation upon which well-being can grow inside of a workplace, or in its absence, uh, it's the ultimate uh, deal killer when it comes to well-being. Because we, we know from a practical perspective that, that where you have an engaged workforce, you're going to have trust in place and you're going to have a psychologically connected workforce in place. So when you attempt to start executing well-being related programs and offerings, you will have a, a foundation that's in place that's going to allow it to thrive and grow and succeed. It's one of the big reasons why, you know, there, there, there are, you know, kind of these meta-analyses or quasi-meta-analyses out there that have been published showing real uneven return on investment in well-being related uh, programs by organizations. Some of them just say, don't bother doing it. It's not worth your money. But there, there, there are two real big problems with, with every single one of those that I've seen. I've, I've studied quite a few of them. And that is, number one, the, the well-being related stuff that is, that is, that is you know, on trial is almost always restricted to physical wellness alone. So it's not looking at holistic well-being. And, and, and these studies never ever are controlling for the engagement of the workforces. Uh, if, you have, if you have a poorly or kind of moderately engaged workforce, you're gonna have a hard time getting your, your well-being stuff going and generating and doing what it's supposed to do. So you've gotta have the engagement in place, put in place and then, and then layer in a holistic approach to your well-being programs, then you're gonna give yourself a chance to succeed. You know, uh, back to that intertwining for a second. Uh, it it sounds like you're advocating. Uh, it's it, and it's a uh, a tough one to navigate because you want both at the same time. But 
you're, you're navigating an engagement scenario or activity or program uh, before you begin to score high on the well-being index. Is that correct? Yes, and that's a great observation and a great point. And I'm glad that you called that out. We, we, we've studied this nexus, the synergy between engagement and well-being pretty extensively for years now. It's a big part of Gallup's sweet spot, a big part of Gallup's racket inside of this space. Um, they're, they're highly correlated, as you might imagine. Employees that have high engagement are going to be more likely to have high well-being and vice versa. We also have, have undertaken very large-scale um, uh, longitudinal studies where we've tracked many thousands of the same workers over multi-year periods. Inside of those models, the, the longitudinal work is very useful analytically. Now it's not just cross-sectional examinations of correlative relationships between things, but we can start staking causal claims between two things. And so, you, you know, you control for the important demographics like income and education and age and race and gender and job type. You know, you're controlling for all that in the model. And then we say, okay. Well, workers that have high engagement at time A, what's, how's that going to influence their well-being in the future, 12, 24 months down the road, controlling for the baseline level of well-being? And what we find is, is that that, that has, a, has a very strong uh, influence on the future state of well-being. What we also find with equal currency is that when you, when you switch it around, the same data set, the same 10 or 15 or 20,000 workers, and now we're looking at well-being at time A, and we're using that to predict employee engagement in the future. Uh, it has a very similar effect. So, so each has a, a distinct uh, causal influence on the future state of the other. Now, that being said, to your point, they're, you know, they're not the same thing after all. You, we have individuals and teams and organizations and communities where we, where we, you know, workers across in communities where we can find high levels of engagement, but not very good well-being, or we can find high levels of well-being, but not very good engagement, just because you, having one, in, it, it, it improves the probability of having the other, but it doesn't ensure it. And, and so, and, and that brings up the non-additive benefits of each because where you have both, uh, we find very consistently as, a, as an individual worker or team, uh, uh, those folks are gonna outperform those that have one, but not the other. Now the one or not the other is almost always gonna outperform those that are not very good at either. Poor, if, you're, if you're, you have poor engagement, there's a pretty good chance you'll have low well-being too. And if you do, they're at the bottom of the, uh, the pyramid as far as uh, their performance. Um, but having both, that's just better. And it, and it underscores how they influence one another. Now, that being noted, um, there are practical aspects of this, coming back to your original question, Ron. And that is, well, if you're going to work on this, what, what do you work on first? Do you, do you work on them both at the same time? The, the ultimate best practice, practice is working on them both at the same time, but only if the engagement part is in place first. And so we, you know, we, we have had clients before that have jumped into this game, have jumped into the pool with both of these parts at the same time. Um, I think it's a harder lift to do that from a practical perspective. 
you want to have the engagement in place first, because if you have the engagement in place first, as I noted, you're, you, you, you're going to have employees that are uh, going to be more, more likely to notice well-being related stuff. They're going to be more likely to embrace it and participate in it. They're going to feel more comfortable talking about it with their peers and their manager. They're going to be more likely to see their well-being improve over time. All that's because they're in a more trusting, more psychologically connected workplace. And so do the engagement first. I, I think it's it's smart to, to work on that for a good three or even four years until you're a ways down that journey as an organization, uh, down that path, and, and you've had a chance to, to, to boost the engagement of your workforce, then enter well-being. Once well-being has been added, by all means, assimilate it into engagement level action planning interventions. I think it's very much a best practice to have both in play at the same time, where you're, you're, we're thinking about both of them in concert with one another as we're trying to enhance the probabilities that this is happening with our workforce, um, not just one, in a, one or the other in silos. Uh, but, you know, as I said, get the, try and get the engagement, um, uh, try and get that under your belt first and then bring in the well-being. And it's not a linear thing, is it? It's, it's really interesting. If you go through the Q12 on engagement, um, you start realizing what Gallup is advocating. And again, starting with the science, starting with the assessment, starting with the data you've collected, and then going to, okay, how do we correct this? How do we get a higher score on engagement? Uh, what I hear more uh, and more from you, even more so lately with, with the Gallup people out there talking about the Q12, is this idea, and this is not a shameless plug, by the way, the idea of teaching people how to have a great conversation with their employees. It comes down to a manager level block and tackle having a conversation with their employees. Am I, am I right? It's, it, it's the, I, th I think, probably the most important element. And that's, the, look, I'm not here to, to dump on any, anybody's wellness app. I mean, I think stuff like that can and do have a, a useful place in helping individuals think about it, helps keep it on the radar screen a, a little bit. Maybe they can get some useful uh, ideas or, or testimonials or uh, good, you know, healthy cooking recipes or whatever it might be. Mindfulness is a big thing right now, meditation. All that stuff can be useful. And, and there are folks out there that can get a lot out of that kind of stuff. The problem is, is that those things tend to, I mean, they, they're very, they're, they're packaged as being very communitarian. So it's one big virtual community, but there is very little to nothing in the way of, of authentic team-based dialogue with your direct report manager. There is no replacement for that other than actually doing that. And I think when, when, you, know, when you look at kind of some of those um, uh, more individualized uh, wellness tools, which tend to be apps, sometimes it's something else. Um, that's, in my humble opinion, in my professional opinion, is the biggest part that's missing. Yeah, I, and it's, it's amazing how you're finding with your data that these two uh, bookends, engagement and well-being, uh, could serve if you look at it almost like a Gartner magic quadrant, right? For those people who are striving to be innovators in this field, because they understand 
how it puts them in a strategic competitive performance with their peers, if you will, if they have both, uh, that's your upper quadrant. And your lower quadrant is you haven't even started. You haven't even begun to ask the conversation. You haven't had a great conversation yet. Yep. <clears throat> yep, that's right. That's right. And we, you know, I, I, I referenced how engaged employees are a lot more comfortable discussing these matters with their managers it, by a lot more, uh, I'm talking levels of magnitude, more likely, very, very significantly different. If you look at the, 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 the comfort level that engaged employees will have discussing the five elements up to and including financial well-being. Financial well-being is the one that, that comes with at the least level of comfort that I think is intuitive enough. But even there, the, you know, if you're engaged, um, uh, 30% or more of engaged employees are going to feel very comfortable discussing these matters with their client. If you're, if you're poorly engaged, what Gallup calls actively disengaged, that'll drop down into the low single digits. Um, it, with the other elements, which are, um, you know, the, for which the wheels are greased a little bit more, people feel more comfortable talking about some other kind of stuff, you know, then, then you have levels of comfort that are climbing up into 60, 70, 80% of engaged employees compared to maybe 20% of actively disengaged employees. So, you know, you're talking three, four, five times more likely to feel comfortable entering into that critically important component of dialogue where the engagement has been established. Do you have, you have a great assessment, uh, you have great assessment tools for engagement as well as well-being. Do you have an assessment tool for a leader's readiness or a manager's readiness to be an engaged? <laughs> uh, well, um, we have we certainly have tools that assess the natural aptitudes of individuals for particular roles, including a variety of manager roles. And so, we the the, the square peg in the square hole, the old. Gallup SRI philosophy goes back originally to Don Clifton, who was the founder of SRI that, that eventually bought Gallup and took its name back in the late 1980s. Um, and, and these are about looking at, at, uh, at natural talent in individuals to be good leaders and to be good managers. Uh, we do think that, so there's a, there's a difference between natural aptitude and learning a set of competencies. Um, we do uh, we do provide uh, a variety of different um, tools and and uh, learning opportunities for managers to get better at their craft, regardless of their talent level. But we find that those that are good natural leaders in, in that role are going to get a lot more out of it than those who aren't. And um, that's a you know it's just a psychometrics based assessment that we use to help know who's who's. Uh, who's a square peg moving into a square hole for uh, something like that kind of role. Mm. Well, this has been a great conversation with Dan Witters. What we've learned today are the bookends of engagement and well-being and the, um, that there are tools out there not only to assess your own cultures and communities, but also uh, individuals' performance and aptitude as well. Uh, Dan, this has been a great conversation. Who would you like to invite to the next great conversation? You know, Dan Butner would be a great one. Dan's an old friend and colleague of mine. Um, uh, I don't know if he's been on the show before, uh, but as, as some of your um, viewers will know, Dan 
um, came up with the Blue Zones Project. He wrote the book, The Blue Zones, uh, about 15 years ago, where he studied places around the world that had uh, folks who lived unusually long and, and healthy lives. And he studied them and he, he kind of boiled it down to nine common features, nine common characteristics that he found across each of them. Um, in the meantime, he's uh, kind of weaponized that knowledge and, and turn it into a business model. And so communities, um, I think there's over 50 of them now uh, around the country in nine or 10 different states have, have entered into partnerships with the Blue Zones Project where they'll come in and they'll try and restructure the built structure and, 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 and the restaurants and the schools and, <clears throat> and uh, the businesses and overhaul the, the, the grocery stores, of course, get involved and just overhaul the culture of the place and help it, it help create a foundation and a culture where people have better probabilities of living high well-being lives. That's the whole idea behind it. Uh, Dan's an old friend and, and colleague, and we've done a lot of work together over the years. So that would be, I guess I'll, I'll toss his name into the hat. Well, that would be interesting to combine Gallup's expertise and tools with the, uh, let's call it the form and function and layout to sustain it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this has been a great conversation with Dan Witters. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Ron.